is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney, and I'm glad you're joining us. Today, we are discussing pastoral burnout and the legal issues that can arise when leadership is suffering from burnout. And I get to interview Mindy Caliguire, Soul Care President and CEO, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years. Listeners, let me introduce you to Mindy. She is the co-founder and president of Soul Care, a spiritual formation ministry that exists to increase soul health in the body of Christ. She serves in the executive leadership role at Glue, and prior to that, she served as Director of Transformation Ministry for the Willow Creek Association. Mindy speaks and advises organizations including Spire, Stadia Church Planting, Salvation Army, and Compassion International. Her books include STIR, Spiritual Transformation in Relationships, Become Like Jesus, Discovering Soul Care, Spiritual Friendship, Soul Searching and Simplicity, as well as Write for Your Soul, The Whys and Hows of Journaling. Welcome to the podcast, Mindy. Thank you, Erika. I'm thrilled to be with you. And uh, yes, it is a delight to be able to serve together, having been friends now for so many years. So I'm really grateful for the invitation to be part of the work, really important work you're doing here on this podcast. So thanks. Well, I have to tell you, when I was thinking about and really felt that God put in my heart um, to raise this discussion of pastoral burnout, church leaders um, serving and really having this experience of challenges within the soul, mm-hmm. the name Mindy Caliguar was like at Aww. the top of the list of folks <laughs> that I would want to speak with. So um, let me just say, our listeners are going to be very familiar. You know, these are pastors and church leaders, mm-hmm. so they're going to readily identify with our discussion today. But just so that we're all on the same page, I want to start by asking a few questions to set our framework. Yeah. First, what is soul care? Oh, what a great, what a great question. I get asked that all the time and it can be answered on many levels. Uh, On one hand, it's an historic term throughout the history of the church. It's been a vision of how people are um, with one another, caring for the souls of of others. And and so it has a long history in the church. Uh, In more recent times, uh, it has, many people use that term and it generally refers to the care that we provide to others or the ways we're intentional about caring for our own souls. And so for me and now for what work I'm doing, that was the context that it was really introduced to me. So for me, soul care was the intentionality is the intentionality I bring around caring for my own soul, which, you know, put an asterisk in that, of course, it's God who provides the care for our souls, but we arrange our lives to receive that ongoing nurture and care from God. And those practices, that intentionality was embedded in my own story, which involved a lot of burnout, which I know is a bit of today's topic. But so for that, it just became my way of life. But now many, many years since that really painful crisis, soul care as an entity is uh, really, as you said in that mission statement, we exist to help 
lift up soul health in the body of Christ. And we do that through resources, experiences, communities, services like coaching and spiritual direction. There's a whole range of uh, people coming together around this vision in this moment in the church. And so that's the multi-layered answer to the question of what is soul care. No, that's so, so helpful. That's so helpful. And on the other side of that, I imagine, is this term that we've used, again, wanting to create a framework of burnout. Mm -hmm. So would you define from your perspective as someone who's served in this arena for, for decades now, how would you define the term burnout? Yeah. And again, there are many voices in this in this realm. But yes, from my perspective, I would say that burnout is a condition of the soul of the human person that is uh, is representative of severe depletion, severe depletion, lack of margin, and frankly, it can get to the point where systems are starting to kind of shut down our emotional systems, our physical symptom systems at times. Spiritually, we start to diminish in pretty severe ways. And so burnout, I mean, it sort of gets this idea that there's something in you that is alive, that has a flame, that is that has something to contribute. And when the whole thing has burned out, there's nothing left. And and so that I, you know, that's maybe a, a very um sort of bottom shelf way of understanding what burnout is. Uh, but there are dimensions to what's going on biochemically in the brain. There are dimensions to how we relate to one another when we're in this place of burnout. But I like thinking about it as a, as a, it's just severe, severe depletion in our well-being, in our soul. That's so helpful. And I've heard you share your burnout story, and maybe some of our listeners have, and some have not. Would you mind? One, sharing a bit of your burnout story and maybe as a part of that two, number two, help pastors and leaders be able to identify when maybe they're experiencing burnout. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And if you're listening today and and that's you, are you suspecting that's you? Please let that idea land. Because it's we we all want to avoid it, or I did, and it's better to sort of recognize where you're actually at, and then be able to take steps towards health um, rather than what I did, which was just like an idiot. I just well, not that you're an idiot, but I it was. <laughs> I just kept pushing and pushing. So um, yeah, Erika, what happened for me? Um, my husband and I, you know, had gone to Cornell University. He had been at Dallas Seminary. We had interned uh, in the early '90s at Willow Creek, and then we went out to Boston uh, to start a church. And we ended up spending a full ten years there. But truly, the it's a difficult thing to plant a church. It's a difficult thing to plant a church in Boston, and then it's a difficult thing to plant a church in Boston on your own, like without any sending organization or anything. So we did a hard thing in a hard place, and the hardest possible way, which is just, you know, not a good idea. (laughs) We shouldn't set ourselves up for that. But many of us and many of your listeners, many of us uh, listening today, you know, we're inspired by the message of the kingdom and by the imperative of sharing the gospel. And we want to go to the ends of the earth and do the things that God has called us to do. So we don't maybe recognize the disconnect between the unsustainable rhythms that we take on in pursuing those goals. And that is for sure true with me and with us, uh, my husband and myself. And so we, uh, the, you know, the natural pressures of that context and the work 
combined with the immaturity in myself and both of us in different ways, I just responded to the increasing pressures in the only way I knew how from academics, from the business world, from everything else I'd ever done, which was just keep pushing harder and harder, mm-hmm. just, just keep doing more. And for me, there were probably many symptoms that in hindsight, I ignored. I think of them as symptoms of soul neglect. I probably had many of them, but I was unaware and unaware that there was anything actually wrong with that. And I was therefore unwilling or didn't even think that I needed to shift my course of action. And so for me, what happened is one day I just woke up and everything in my field of vision like was moving. Like if you imagine you took this Zoom screen and did this for a while, like that's just kind of what everything I saw looked like. Wow, I've never done that before. That was exactly what it was like. It was going back and forth and up and down. That's not, that doesn't feel good. No, no. It turns out it makes you very nauseous. Mm-hmm. And so for the next three months uh, or more, I, I could not hold food down. I couldn't eat unless I was blindfolded. I couldn't walk a straight line. I couldn't obviously drive or read or write or watch television. I could not do anything. And it very much sidelined me from my own life and from ministry. And I remember telling God how like not strategic it was because all this work wasn't happening. Try telling God that he's not strategic. (laughs) He has an interesting way of working that way. (laughs) And so I want to pause in the middle of this. Um, I I was very confused. I was kind of like, God, you know, I'm on your team. Like this doesn't make any sense. And I just began to realize how deeply my identity was wrapped up in what I was doing, that the thought of my worth or value or belovedness just emerging from essence rather than from effort or contribution was a big a big wake-up call uh, for me, a, a welcome invitation. But during those times, I would often not be able to sleep in the night. And I remember... God saying, you know, Mindy, how about those three different small groups you've been leading that you had memorized John 15, five, if you remain, we all know this verse. if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And I just sense God gently kind of with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, so to speak saying, you know, Mindy, what part of nothing didn't you understand? And I think there's a lot about nothing that especially in the evangelical church leadership context, we don't really understand. So I can pause on it there. What's also true is my husband was going through his own version of this story, which was a much less obviously physical, but more emotional initially with almost like a, a, a depressing set of circumstances, but it probably resulted, we don't know, we will never know for sure in a true chemical depression. Like when you stay in that negative, like depleted state for as little as three weeks, the medical community has reinforced this to me many times. Guys, if you stay in that depleted state for as little as three weeks, your brain starts to reinforce what it thinks it's experiencing. And so what started as a circumstantial perhaps we could name it that a circumstantial depression can turn into a chemical depression, which is being reinforced by your brain chemistry and is needs to be dealt with holistically. 
And we, we just had no language for that. We, we didn't know what that was. Nobody was talking about depression or mental health or any of those things. We just did, you know, he was the, uh, Ivy league football player, fraternity boy, campus crusade, Dallas seminary, Willow Creek guy that couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And it's like, wait, what? And I was the chipper, annoyingly chipper, like, Hey honey, let's just get up and keep trying harder. You know, I mean, we were just a train wreck. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that it all worked until it didn't, right? Oh yeah. 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 And it very much did. And, and I, it very, uh, we have an expression at glue sometimes that some of the leaders talk about how certain things shake your snow globe. I mean, this definitely shook the snow globe. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why this is the way it is. Yeah. So that took me and us both in our own ways into journeys of healing and uh, ultimately an invitation to spiritual formation, to transformation, to a way of life that could allow me to learn to let go of outcomes and rest myself in God's good care and let whatever he wants to do through my life happen out of those unforced rhythms of grace rather than smart people working hard. That's like the world has enough of that. That's not, <laughs> that's not the solution. Well, you know, as an attorney, right. <laughs> in big yeah. law and, um, being a part of the church community, I can, I totally resonate with what you're saying. And I'm also thinking about how pastors and leaders are all about serving others, which is what you were talking about. You were in a place of planting a church, you and your husband doing good things on God's behalf, right? Which we, I think, often have been taught equates to things going well, there being peace, kumbaya, but that is not what you were experiencing. And I assure you that we have people who are with us today who are Mm -hmm. resonating with what you've just shared. Yeah. Yeah. I often have said, I wish I had no audience for the message I've been bringing for the past 20 some years, but my experience in so much of the U S and in several global contexts is that this is not as it should, I wish had been a rare situation. This has become, if I could uh, even be so bold to say, I would say it's more the norm that leaders are as you said, faithfully giving, faithfully leading, they'll never leave the faith. Like Peter, we would say to Jesus, where else am I going to go? Like we, it's almost like we know too much. We're never going to leave, but we have never, it is a crisis of leadership at a global scale that most, almost every leadership context I'm in, the norm is leaders who are giving and serving out of severe depletion, not even just like sort of mild depletion, severe depletion. And we lack the rationale, the theology, the rhetoric to even imagine, never mind, change our patterns. And I hope that that will change. I believe that can change. And I think what we've been through uh, as a global community the last year and a half has I don't think it has caused the deep unhealth in pastors and leaders. I think it has exposed the deep unhealth in pastors and leaders and exacerbated it at a level we none of us could ever have foreseen. Well, Mindy, let me just say, obviously, I'm an attorney. This is I come at this from my framework of helping 
Mm. churches and their leaders in various matters, whether we're talking about a church merger or church planting or helping them build a structure for their financial health, et cetera. And I have seen what it looks like when a pastor's burnt out and how that can bleed into the church and its operations. So whether that means a a moral failure or whether that means the inability to to lead in situations where um, maybe the church needs a change of direction, um, Mm -hmm. where it's time to really be able to give a substantial amount of energy to a new project. I've seen, you know, I can't say I've seen it all, but I've seen a lot of these circumstances where something that you know, again, a legal term that might be considered a soft tissue issue, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but really has hard and fast impacts on how churches are operated. Yep. You know, so could you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing that all over the place. We are seeing that all over the place. And for years, again, before the pandemic, I was, I, I was somewhat annoyed at how people would sort of turn their noses up to these moral failures and talk about how, you know, how aghast we are. Not that, that, not that that's not terrible, right? That is terrible. But it's like, do, do we not realize that we've created a system that actually more likely than not will produce pastors making terrible choices, making terrible leadership decisions, ruining their own health, their families, their marriages, their children. We have created a system that that is actually the predictable outcome. So Isn't that ironic? It's terrible. It grieves me greatly. I have no joy in saying that. But I just feel like I wish we would stop nitpicking at the incidents and try to get back to the headwaters. Why is this happening? What is the world we've created where this is a as common an outcome as it is. I, you know, I don't know if you know Jimmy Dodd with Pastor Serve. They're an organization based in, in Kansas City. And he's got a team of people that are sort of experts in crisis intervention with mm-hmm. churches. And they probably go to them first and then they end up at your doorstep. Well, I've connected um, with him to, and, and frankly, I've sent a number of leaders to him. Great. So, and he's great. come to my conference. You know, I have an annual conference, the church compliance conference. And so we connected. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. He's fabulous. He, before the pandemic is when we were first building a friendship before the pandemic, he's, uh, he told a group of us that their call center gets a hundred calls. It was either a day or a week, but some unacceptable number. I think it was a hundred calls a day from churches around the country that are like, it's an elder calling on behalf of the team. That's a pastor who's bailing out. It's whatever it is. The scale of this is huge. It is huge. It is not isolated incidents that hit the headlines. What this is going on in big towns, small towns, it is tragically far more often the norm. The exceptions are the people who are, I did talk to a pastor just this past week who's in a small town in Illinois and he's just flourishing. He he's choosing this way of life. He's inviting his people into this way of life. And like, it's not, I don't think it's an impossible thing. It's just not the norm right now. I think right now there is a level of fatigue that is, it is going to hit us like a wave and the adrenal fatigue, even the amount of energy that has been expended trying to keep 
things together. And, and then the ache of like, pastors don't even know who's in their church anymore. They don't know, they don't know what the revenue is going to be. They don't know what staffing they need to keep or lose. They're dealing with their own mental health and their families and then their staff and the congregation. I think the level of fatigue, there will be very, there's not going to be much adrenaline left to push. And when that limit gets hit, I'm hearing some people projecting that one in three churches will be closed a year from now. You know, Erika, I have a question for you, kind of given the fact like whether or not 100,000 churches would be closing, um, we do have actual data around the number of pastors that are considering early retirement or might be even transitioning out of ministry altogether. So there is somewhere around, we're hearing 30, north of 30% pastors who are in that. And again, some of our listeners may be within that, never really telling many people, but that might be what's on their mind. Those statistics would suggest that church boards uh, and, and governance of whatever form are going to need to grapple with some things from a legal standpoint coming up in this next 18 months, <laughs> precisely when people are tired and when we're uh, sort of at risk as a community. Um, what what would you say? What are some like what categories does that bring up in your head of of here's the here's the legal things that we ought to be thinking about and equipping people for? Yeah, honestly, I can think of like ten things <laughs> quickly, but I I won't cover cover ten things. But maybe the first thing I would say is back to that whole idea of of policies of uh, and maybe I'd add another P to the discussion of of planning. And uh, the, the real key there is another P, prevention, right? So within the framework of the law, we always look toward how can we have best practices so that we can, as best we can, have predictable outcomes, right? So if we can really focus on a church being in a position that if they're going to transition in some sort of way, that they actually have a clear policy of how they want to do it. And we would call that a succession plan, right? So that pastors actually have something in place. And when it comes to succession planning, as a matter of fact, I had an opportunity to write an article for church law and tax on succession planning. So we'll include that in the show notes. But I always say that you have a process or a person, right? And so if you already know within the framework of your church who the successor might be, there is a already some acceptance around, around that individual. Maybe that person is already serving in an assistant role or sort of the second in command, if you will. But if that doesn't exist, then hopefully there's a process, right? Your, your governance board, your leadership board, whatever you happen to call it, they will be in the place to come together and really do the work of developing the succession plan. Another consideration is when you talk about pastoral retirement, um, I'd want to make sure that the church has done everything that it can to make sure that that pastor financially is positioned for retirement. My experience has been that a lot of the reasons why sometimes pastors hang on, even past the point of contentment, past the point of what they would even say is meets their druthers, is because of financial reasons. And that's, that's common in any industry, right? So I would want the church to make sure that 
it has done all that it can, whether that's through um, the housing allowance, whether that is through what we would call a rabbi trust, whatever kind of plans we could put in place to make that retirement something that's as seamless as possible. Another consideration is if the if it seems that we want to that it makes sense for the church to change its direction and maybe again using that statistic of one in three churches perhaps in the post pandemic life of the church not continuing maybe a church merger is something that would make sense and um, we're going to have a great podcast discussion around church mergers and so make sure you listen to that one but those are the some of the things that come come to mind to me Mindy when we talk about what this post-pandemic church might look like and how we can position ourselves from a legal standpoint to serve, uh, to put the church in a position able to serve its kingdom purpose and not hopefully be caught up in any of the ugly things that can happen when we're, the church is not prepared. Yeah. Yeah. This group in South Florida, and then a lot of the work that I and our team are working on, we have sort of started framing it around the idea of prevention. How do we get on the front end of this before the crisis happens that blows up the reputation of Jesus and the community that blows up, you know, all the things that you're talking about. I think of the prevention um, goal in terms of the, the, the lack of carnage in families and in persons' lives and in congregational trust of leaders, all those things. When you think of the topic of prevention, what does that mean for us legally or from a policy standpoint? Yeah, when I think of prevention from a legal standpoint, it is reducing liability, right? Mm-hmm. So when you say reducing the carnage, we're really talking about what kinds of risk management makes makes the church be able to operate in a way that it reduces the potential for liability. So having that proper framework from a governance standpoint, from an operation standpoint, fiscal considerations, and succession planning is a natural tenor of that because none of us is going to be here forever, right? Um, that is, that's, we, we live for eternity. So it's okay to put that structure in place that ensures that the church can continue um, long after its current leadership is there. We are here to serve pastors and church leaders. We are here to do our part in in breathing life and hope Mm -hmm. and providing resources. And I reached out to you um, most recently to really share a vision that I was surprised, frankly, that God um, put on my heart, which was to help burnout pastors take the next step toward a life of more joy and contentment while still walking in their spiritual giftedness. Amen. And and I've called that take the next call, right? And so that is a way that I trust God will allow me to be a resource as someone who has, you know, a bit like that image on the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, when you sort of go to, you know, the sheet comes up and it's like, oh, okay, you know, I, I've been in the places where people have felt the need to create the performance. And really at the end, that doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be that person. And, um, and, and so I, I want us to bring some hope 
to this discussion yes, um, because yes, I believe yes. that you and I, I and are people of hope. I believe that that really is sort of the message that we, you know, ultimately the gospel, right, is all about hope. Um, and so I, I really want us to be able to share, like, what resources do we see as being helpful that that we can share today, and how can we inspire a pastor or church leader who may be listening right now, who's able to identify in, right, to being a part of that majority of pastors, as you described, who may be feeling burnout. How do we move it forward in in a way that that brings hope? Yes. I love that you're bringing this. There is hope. There's, I, I, again, sometimes I'm a wild optimist, maybe not rightly so, but I, I don't see how we don't choose hope. I don't see how we don't choose optimism. I think, you know, Jim Collins has written about this Stockdale paradox. I think that we, we, ought, we must be able to look unflinchingly at what's hard and not right and never, ever, 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 ever lose hope. That's a Jim Collins thing. I think in the kingdom, in the gospel, all the more reason there's a basis. We are surrounded by the resources of the kingdom of God, the vastness of the kingdom of God, the goodness, the energy, the life, the pulse of the kingdom of God. That is what is always surrounding us. And it is we who turn our faces. Like we, even in the midst of our doing in ministry, nobody's turned away from the beliefs about Jesus, as I was saying earlier. But we, I used to be a swimmer. It, it, it's almost like we're swimming and our heads are in the water and we don't have time to take a breath because we're sprinting so hard. And when I was a sprinter swimmer and I could swim a whole long way without taking a breath, that was part of what made me fast because taking breathing takes a little bit of time. And it, it would be like, I would, I, I could do the whole race with maybe no or one breath. That's it. And it would help me be fast. Right. But distance swimmers don't operate that way. Obviously their races are like, you know, eight, 12, 15 minutes long. And you can't hold your breath that long. And what they need to do is learn this thing called alternate breathing. So any of you guys who are swimmers, you may know of this technique, but in a distance race, you want to, you know, usually swimmers in a freestyle, you, you breathe on the side that's your dominant hand, right hand or left hand, you know, this way or this way. But distance swimmers need to learn the very uncomfortable process of initially uncomfortable process of breathing, what they call it alternate breathing. So on an odd number of counts of strokes, you would take a breath on this side and then one, two, three, four, five, or six, seven, or whatever, then you would breathe on the other side because it would distribute the energy that you needed to expend more evenly over the course of a long run. You're making me want to practice my strokes. There you go. Better swimmer. Get them in. Get them in. So good for you. At first, when you try to learn alternate breathing, it's very awkward. It, it doesn't feel natural. To me, that is a perfect metaphor of what's available to us precisely in the midst of our calling, precisely in the midst of our contributions, our effort, is that we learn ways of breathing, of breathing that kingdom atmosphere that literally surrounds us all the time. But we have to learn different ways of ways of prayer, ways of mindfulness, ways of meditation, ways of engaging scripture or community and being in our own skin. There's so many different dimensions to how we can care for our souls. But again, as I was saying earlier, those are sort of the intentionality we bring to learning a different way of swimming or of working. 
the life is always in the breath, is in what God sustains us with, right? When I think about me back in Boston, I think I was like a distant swimmer who was trying to swim the way I always had. And if you had been watching me in the pool, you would have been like, she, she's like losing her faculties. She's like kind of going this way, kind of going that way. And you'd be like screaming at me, like, just pick your head up, roll over on your back, stop, do anything. You are surrounded by life. Mm-hmm. It's right here, right here, right now. It doesn't take a five-year PhD in spiritual formation. Doesn't take like, a, you know, if, if you can hop out of the pool for a three-month sabbatical, by all means do. That would be great. But if you have to find life in the middle of, of your current place, which is where I was and where many of us are, there are ways you can learn to breathe. There are ways you can learn to just rest yourself in God's good care right in the middle of what you're doing and breathe. Thanks for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com. podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights. Thank you.